uh, want to uh, thank Norm and uh, Tim Fales, who's not here, uh, who along with uh, Joe did a ton of work over the last week and a half to get my office uh, to the point where it's uh, almost usable. So thank you. <laughs> thank you guys for your, uh, your faithfulness and for working so hard. I know it's a lot, as, as Norm says, it was a sight for sore eyes. Um, so that'll only be true of the guy working in it now. Um, I also want to thank uh, New Hope. Um, as, as you know, Mary and I were, uh, just got back from a, a trip to Israel. Uh, we were able to go with um, a number of, uh, of evangelical pastors and scholars and journalists and writers and publishers, um, along with uh, a few rabbi friends, and uh, New Hope generously made it possible for uh, Mary to, to join me on the trip, which was terrific. Uh, we will, uh, you will not be surprised to know, have a lot of pictures to share, uh, and we'll figure out a time to do that. But, uh, uh, so stay tuned on that, but uh, we're thrilled to be there. It was a great opportunity. We met some really amazing people, uh, and uh, we look forward to sharing that with you. Uh, as, as Jen mentioned, uh, we, we are having evening prayer on Saturdays during Lent. That's right in here. That's at 5.30 on Saturdays, and it's done by 6.15. Um, if anybody who's interested in sticking around to talk about this new Episcopal congregation that we're planting is welcome to do that. Um, I know some people uh, really like the evening, uh, the, the Book of Common Prayer and the prayer services uh, that we've used from that, and others not so much. So um, if, if, if you like it, that's the sort of thing you'd like. And, um, and if not, uh, then don't feel like you need to come. But it's a, it's a great opportunity to pray together. And, and, and what we're trying to do with this new congregation is to start it with prayer. I think that kind of makes sense. Uh, so, so that's what we're doing. Uh, thanks to Tommy for, uh, and to Kevin for being part of that last night. So um, being a, a person of the age I am, uh, I can feel old sometimes when I think of a few technological changes that have occurred over the years. When I grew up, we had a phone that had a cord on it. So some of you younger folks may not remember this, but there used to be that phones had cords that you had to have to stick it to the wall. And not just that, but we had a rotary phone. See, you may have heard people use the expression, dial this number. You used to literally have to dial a number. You couldn't just punch the, punch the numbers in on a keypad. You actually had to dial. I grew up with that. Uh, I grew up with, I'm, this was not like a retro thing. We actually had a black and white television. Um, and uh, I, it was, it was in, in my, uh, just my last couple years of college that I had, that I was first required to submit an assignment by email. And I did not know what to do because I hadn't used email. I'm, you know, we have, uh, Marty, uh, Marty's gone. Marty Hall, of course, was in the early generations uh, of, of people who knew what was going on with that, but uh, that, was, that was new to me. Um, and, uh, and I realized over the years, you know, as, as, things, have, as things have moved along, uh, some of the old things get left behind, like dialing a number. Um, I confess I do not stay on top of the chat boards or the comments section of most things uh, on the internet because that's usually bad for my health. 
But there was one some years ago. I would hang out on this one chat board or two just to try to get a sense of what that was like and what people were talking about and how that worked. And, and I, I came to be really enamored of these abbreviations that people would use, like C-I-G-A-W. Anybody know what that is? C-I-G-A-W is can I get a witness? Uh, D-I-G-T-B-K, if somebody had made a particularly resounding point, uh, damn, it's good to be king. Um, and, uh, and one, especially sinister one, W-A-Y-S-A, why are you still alive? Now, in an age of cyberbullying, we, of course, need to be careful with that sort of thing. In, in, uh, in, in the context in which I often saw it used, it was the sort of thing where people would, would say, you know, if, if, you're not, uh, if you're not rooting for the Yankees, W-A-Y-S-A, or something obnoxious like that. It's a terrible thing to say to anybody. It's a terrible thing to say to any human being made in the image of God, why are you still alive? But I think it's a vitally necessary thing for every church to ask itself on a fairly regular basis. Quick quiz, who's the light of the world? Jesus, good answer, yes, this is true. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus spoke again to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In general, the answer to the question on Sunday morning is Jesus. But who else is the light of the world? We are the light of the world, according to Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Mary and I were just where or somewhere near where Jesus delivered these beatitudes in this lovely church that kind of has the shine taken off of it when you find out that Mussolini founded, funded it. So Jesus delivers the beatitudes. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a former Archbishop of Canterbury who said that the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-members. And the truth is, one of the most important questions we can ask of any church if we want to know if it's being faithful to what it's being called to do, is to ask, who would miss us if we were gone? Would there be anyone to play with cups and say, you're going to miss us when you're gone?
See, what I'm talking about here is what's been referred to in the literature lately as a missional orientation, an understanding that God's people are sent out into the world to be his partners, to cooperate with him in the work that he is trying to do in the redemption of creation. It's not like he needs us, but he chooses to work in and through and with us. And so we're his partners in the work that he is doing. And as you may have noticed, there's quite a lot that needs to be redeemed. Now this runs up hard against a couple of attitudes that the church has often had the tendency to fall into. One of which is the attitude that, hey, we're the church and we're going to do our church thing and if you know what's good for you, you'll come in with us and do our church thing. Used to be, societally, people were expected to be part of a church thing somewhere. So there are churches in this area that basically started when somebody put up a church on the corner, put out a sign outside, painted the door red, opened the door and said, okay, you all can come in now. And they did. Because that's what you did. It used to be <clears throat> that atheists would hold memberships in two different churches, especially back when there were pew rents, and they would have their name there on the pew. It was like a, an old-school PSL. It's not the, the Ravens didn't come up with this. And the idea was that would, the polite assumption was that if this person wasn't at your church that morning, then he must be at the other one he belongs to. Not so anymore. And in some ways, I think that's a better thing. Because if people are at church, if they're part of this Jesus movement, it's because there's something that they're doing to contribute to. It's because he's called them to be part of it. It's because they've said, yeah, we're in. We're in. Not, I'm going to show up here because it's appropriate to show up, and I can't wait to get out. also runs up against the idea of church existing primarily for its own good of this holy huddle, a society of people who are turned inward upon themselves and their own experience of worship. We talked about this uh, some at the leaders' meeting yesterday. I was referring to this a couple weeks ago when we talked about worship in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that everything should be done decently and in order. It's not like he was a control freak or a control enthusiast. Paul was saying when we worship, when we worship God, we have to make sure that we're worshiping God and not our experience of worshiping God. And one way we can notice that we're worshiping our experience of worshiping God is if the way we worship is getting in the way of other people worshiping. If you're getting your Jesus thing on in a way that other people are, are freaked out by, well, then you're not really worshiping God, you're just having this ecstatic experience, and it's getting in the way of the unity of the body. We have to protect one another. But it's also possible for a worship experience to be all about the worship experience as a whole among the people who really like that. You may have been to a place where people will say, well, it's not really Christmas unless Bernice sings O Holy Night. I got to break it to you. It was Christmas before Bernice was singing O Holy Night. It was Christmas before O Holy Night was written. And after Bernice passes, thanks be to God, it'll still be Christmas. 
It doesn't depend on that. Jesus is bigger than our experience of him. But it can be tempting for a church to be so focused on its own affairs, so focused on how people feel when they come together, whether they like the style of the music, whether they like the preaching, whether they like the temperature in the sanctuary. This, I think, is one of the reasons that battles over carpeting in church can get so vicious. I'm so grateful we have this lovely English tile, and we will never in this space have to fight about what color the carpet is in the sanctuary. Because if your focus is on what your experience is inside the walls of the church and among the people of the church and doing what you're doing in the church, then you can forget the fact that you are a city on a hill and you're not supposed to have a basket on top of your light and that your salt is supposed to be salty. I'm reminded of the story of the uh, Calvary Chapel pastor who came into a meeting of his board and everybody was, was very upset about how these hippies were coming into their church and they were kind of not really well bathed and some of them were barefoot or they had these dirty sandals and they were tracking mud all over the carpet and, and he, he got up in the middle of the meeting and he went off and, you know, got some tools out and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going to take a crowbar and rip up the carpet because this is obviously getting in the way of our ministry. Now, our, our responsibility is to be salt and light in community, yes, absolutely in community, as Joe talked about last week. But we're to be salt and light as community in the community where God has put us. Now, one of the challenges to that, of course, is understanding what we mean by community. That was easier in a time when you very seldom would go more than a couple of miles from your house. I mean, one of the challenges that Stone Chapel had is that it was built at a time when people either walked or rode a horse to church. Didn't need a big parking lot back then, right? Now, not so much. Some of us spend most of the, our time in our own neighborhoods, and others of us are constantly driving around Baltimore. Others constantly driving around the Baltimore-Washington area. Others flying all over the country for our work. Last year, I spent half my time in New York and half my time in Baltimore. We go through these times. So who's, who was my community back then? Was the neighbors on my court that I barely saw at all? Was it the people that I was going to school with when I was there and I barely left that block of the city? No. In a sense, both are true. And there's probably a sense in which those are going to be true for different folks in different ways. I think it's clear some people in our church have been called to have a significant presence to be salt and light in particular neighborhoods. Others to have that role in the schools that they're part of. I think about when, when the girls were, were going to school. Mary invested heavily in being part of the life of their elementary school. She got to be known by the faculty and by the staff. She volunteered. She served. She became a, a trusted presence there. She became a, a part of the life of that community of that particular elementary school. And some people will do that for, for the other schools that they're part of. You may do it for your alumni association at, at your college. 
for some people, you're at work so much, that's your main community. In a way, less important than trying to define in really clear terms what community means is being faithful to be salt and light in the community where God has put you as you understand that to be, I think. And I think it's also the case that we can tell, we can tell when a salty presence is needed. One of the fun things about getting to know my in-laws is that they are, live in a very uh, rural part of central Pennsylvania, and sometimes their, their speech patterns reflect really archaic ways of talking. It's almost like you're, you're halfway back to Shakespearean English, and, and it's completely natural the way they, they talk. But um, so I remember when, when my mother-in-law would, was making soup and she tasted it and she said, it wants salt. Now, most of us would not say it wants salt, right? Wanting is usually something that people do. But she was saying it wants salt in the archaic sense of it is lacking something, in this case salt. But if you, if you think about it, if you kind of let that soup take on a character of its own, it's missing something if it doesn't have that. So it really does want that salt for it to be what it's supposed to be. The world doesn't always know what it's really wanting. I read recently, a friend of mine retweeted something where he said, everybody looking for porn is really looking for God. There's truth to that. What people are really wanting, what they're really looking for is what God made them to be, is a, is a right relationship with the God of the universe, living fully into the, the image of God that they bear, living in relationships that are whole, that are characterized by trust and forgiveness, being reconciled to a world that is under the curse as we were dramatically reminded of trying to get all the electrons lined up properly for our worship service this morning. Oftentimes we're seeking something, but really what we're seeking after is what God has for us. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and when he says, you are the light of the world, he's not confused. This is not like the, the battle of the two evangelists over who really is the light of the world, and Matthew's saying we are, and Jesus, and John is saying Jesus is, and they're going to go 15 rounds. No, insofar as we can be light, of course, we are only bearing the light that Jesus gives us to bear. By the Holy Spirit, of course, that we can generate this light that shines in the darkness. That light is Christ. Let's not be confused about that. There's nothing that special or wonderful about us in ourselves. What we have to offer, we have because God gave it to us. That's true of our light. That's true of our saltiness to the degree that we have it. 
And you know how it is when that soup wants salt and then you give it that salt and then it's, then it's right. Then it not only is something that you'd want to eat, but it's something you want to keep eating. It's something that, that salt brings out what that food really is, brings out its true essence and lets it shine. That's what the presence of God's people can do. That's what it means for us to be salt. And that happens in all kinds of places. It happens when we're good neighbors to the people that are on our street. It happens when we serve on boards of charities or when we volunteer. It it happens when we are the person in the office that is known to be wise and patient and caring, somebody that people can go to when they have a concern. And if we're not there, if we're missing, then these places want salt. And so the constant challenge for us as the church is to ask, why are we still alive? Are we bringing light into dark places? Are we being salt in places that want salt? Are we a city on a hill? Or are we just hiding? My hope is that as we work out what it means for us to move our worship space on Sunday morning to Catonsville, we'll understand where God's calling us to be salt and light in places that are different from where they've been and in places that are exactly the same as they've been. I think we'll have both. But what I want more than anything is for us to continue to be the kind of church, for us to, be to, to continue to be the kind of people that folks would miss if we went away. We want people to be glad when we enter the room because they think that we're going to make it a better place. And not just because we support financially ministries, although that's important and they would miss us if we went away. But because in all of these things, whether folks know it or not, we are bringing the light and the salt of Jesus Christ. None of what we do makes any sense if it's not about Jesus. But he's the one who calls us to be salt and light. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that in obedience to your command, really in obedience to your description that we are salt and light, that we would faithfully season the places where you send us. That in every place that wants salt where you send us, it would find that we bring that. We pray that in the many dark places that we encounter, that you would use us to shine your light. We pray that this would be as you say, so that people may see our good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. May this always and everywhere be to your glory.
And Lord, I pray that it would be, never be true of us as a church that we would find ourselves with the wrong answer to the question, why are we still alive? I pray that we would always be people who'd be missed if we weren't showing up where you send us. I do pray that this would be to the Father's glory. In Christ's name, amen.